Hey man, it's me, Kevin Smith. Are you listening to the right podcast? Because you're supposed to be listening to Three Guys in a Flick. Are you listening to that right now? Then you're in the right place. Enjoy. Ladies and gentlemen, please take your seats. The show is about to begin. Wendy, darling, light of my life, I'm not going to hurt you. You didn't let me finish my sentence. I said, I'm not going to hurt you. I'm just going to bash your brains in. Welcome back. You are listening to Three Guys in a Flick. This is where we review the good, the bad, and the absurd. Tonight's episode, The Shining. Beware spoilers. Coming to you from the ballroom at the lovely Overlook Hotel, my name is Don. And to my right, we have our comic book guy. This is John. Here's Johnny. And to my left, we have the professor, Ken. Hello, everyone. And reuniting with us this evening is our friend, Danny. Danny's not here right now. No, I am here. I'm here. I'm actually here. Are, are you sure? Yes. Because that was pretty fucking spot on. I'm, I'm here. I'm, I'm in your ears and I'm in your hearts. This, right. this movie was Danny's pick, wasn't it? I believe it was week. Danny's. And, and Danny returns to us because what other pod did he do with us? Pulp Fiction. Yeah, so if you haven't listened to that one, go back and listen to Pulp Fiction. Uh, it's a great show. So welcome back, my friend. Glad to have you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Clearly, I didn't mess it up enough in the last one. You guys had me back. Yeah, well, I mean, we've kind of toyed with the idea of talking about The Shining, and then you said The Shining, so stars kind of aligned, and here we are. We're going to talk about The Shining. Cool. Let's do it. Yeah. Uh, we are in week four of our Halloween special featuring Stephen King. And I know when you're listening to this, it'll be after Halloween, but whatever. So tonight we are talking about The Shining. The and, miniseries, right? Yeah. Well, that's the one I watched. Oh, that's the one I watched. What about you, Professor? Which one did you watch? I watched It Chapter 2. Which one did you watch? Oh, I watched Cuckoo's Nest. You watched what? One Flew, one flew over, over the Cuckoo's, Cuckoo's oh, Nest. Oh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. That's a solid choice. All right, so this, in fact, should be an interesting discussion. Released on May 23rd, 1980, The Shining, which was based on the book by Stephen King, was directed by Stanley Kubrick, screenplay by Stanley Kubrick and Diane Johnson, and it stars Jack Nicholson, Shelley Duvall, Danny Lloyd, Scatman Carruthers, and a bunch of other actors. How'd this movie do, Don? Uh, this movie at the time was made for $19 million and it brought in $47 million. So uh, this, this movie was a hit, right? I wonder how much of that was because of Stanley Kubrick and because of, you know, Jack Nicholson was still pretty big at the time. Uh, I would say all of it. Do you guys remember uh, where you were when you first saw The Shining? Sitting in somebody's living room. Probably, yeah. I think I had pulled it up on TV or rented it. I didn't see it when it originally came out. Yeah. What was your earliest exposure, sir? Uh, just like with Pulp Fiction, it was my parents that introduced me to it. Uh, my mother was terrified by this movie. She told me never to watch it. And just like with Pulp Fiction, I snuck downstairs and I put it on. <laughs> <laughs> how, did, how, did, how did that go? 
it terrified me. It's very, it's a very scary movie. It still scares me. So, so this movie still holds up for you? For me, it does. Yes, yes. And my rewatches in the past week, uh, I think I watched it twice. And the first time, at least, I, I was very immersed and I was, I was scared. How about, how about you, John? Was I scared? No. Uh, does this movie hold up for you still? Uh, to be completely honest, I've never been a Stanley Kubrick, like a big fan. Um, I tend to get lost and distracted and the slow pace of it kind of pulls me out of it. So I kind of felt the same way again watching it this time. Mm. I kind of felt, you know, if the movie makes me look at my phone, then I don't know. I'm just not into the movie. So you're not into 99% of the movies we watch then? Because well, you then. pull you pull out your fucking phone every time we're at the movies and every time we're watching a movie. Don't look at me like that. I've seen it. I've seen it firsthand. So I'll ask you again. 99% of the movies you don't like. No, it's not that I look at my movie or my phone during the movies. Yeah, there it is. If they buzz or the light comes on, I go to turn it off. Uh, <laughs> this one I found I was actually reading stuff on my phone. Uh, okay. How about uh, you, Don? Does this hold up for you? Yes, it does. Uh, I, too, like John, am not a huge Kubrick fan. And uh, going back and rewatching this again, and I have to admit, after watching it, I realized it's been a long time since I've sat down and watched it. Uh, it does hold up for me, and actually, uh, I dare say it even got better. Wow. So, Well, here's something fun to think about. Here's another horror movie that was released just two weeks before this movie. And I ask each of you, does this hold up Friday the 13th? No. Not at all. No. No, but I mean, you got to look at the, the the style of film. You know who made it. Yeah, but this uh, Friday the Thirteenth made thirty nine million dollars compared to The Shining's forty forty seven million dollars. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, uh, Friday the Thirteenth made its money probably on repeat viewing, and at an hour and a half, you get more showtimes in on, during the day. Yeah, so, through that. Yeah. Jason is my favorite of the slasher killers, uh, so I I really like Friday the Thirteenth. I'm I'm a fan. The first one. The, the original. first one. Yeah, more so than any Nightmare on Elm Street, any uh, Pinheads, any any other at the top of the slasher Wait, stop. Let, let me stop you right sure. there. Okay. What you just said was you were more of a fan of the 1980 original Friday the 13th than any of the Freddies or any of the other guys. Correct. He might kick you out of this house. That's a bold statement, young sir. I would wow. say Friday the 13th 2, part 2, is my favorite of the franchise, but... Jason is my favorite of the slashers. And it's funny that you bring that up because I just watched part two the other night and it's not bad, mm. right? I, th I think it's better than the original. That's when it started picking yeah. up. Yeah. Let's talk about this casting. Before we get into casting, let's talk about Kubrick. Okay. All right. Because this is the elephant in the room, right? Okay. It is widely known and probably everybody who's listening to this probably knows the story already. However, as the legend has it, Stephen King did not like Stanley Kubrick's adaptation of his novel. Uh, have you guys read The Shining? No, sir. Long ago. I've read the synopsis. I haven't read the whole thing. So the answer is no. The answer is no. Okay. <laughs> uh, I, too, have not read it. But, you know, being a fan of film and doing our research, you, you, you pick up on these things. And I, I do want to read it, or in this case, probably have it read to me. But I do want to check it out. So, anyways, Stephen King wasn't a big fan of this interpretation. Do you think that Stanley Kubrick's... Wait, what am I trying to say here? Whose team are you on? I, I guess. I guess that's probably the best best way to uh, phrase that. Mm -hmm. So, um, Well, I've read both sides of the argument between Stephen King and Stanley Kubrick, and I got to say I lean closer to Stephen King 
because if you go back to the purpose of his book, I guess the book was written when Stephen King, you know, was just getting over his alcoholism right. and his family troubles and everything. So really, he felt in a way he was Jack Torrance. Sure, and, and so, fair. I mean, he he birthed them, right? He yeah. created them, so that makes yeah. sense. And he wrote his characters a specific way, and Kubrick completely went a different direction with his characters. 100%. And so I can see how that would be insulting to Stephen King. Fair enough. Do you know any of the backstory or any of the history of it? Yeah, generally so. Yeah. And so, so for me... I look at when I am watching a movie, what is being presented to me on screen? How much can I infer from what's not being shown? And if I have to have a backstory to get a more interpretive telling of the story that is not done on film, well, then that I'm sorry, I'm not going to enjoy the movie that much more if I know more about it because that's not what's happening on screen you when you watch what's on screen that should be the entire experience of the movie in my opinion yeah absolutely what about you to that point I think that the novel and the film can be enjoyed as their own stories I do know extensively about the background of that situation I I heard that uh, Kubrick's assistant would bring him books to pour through where he's looking for inspiration for his next film. She would repeatedly hear Kubrick throwing the books across the room as in frustration because nothing was sparking any kind of interest. When she brought him The Shining, it got quiet, and she knew that he'd found what he was looking for in terms of inspiration for his next film. In terms of the back and forth between Kubrick and King, I I mean, throughout the movie, it seems like a lot of big FUs to Stephen King. There's, yeah. there's very clear middle fingers being pointed to Stephen King. Yeah. And yeah, I, I kind of fall into the camp that uh, if you're a writer and your book or whatever gets optioned, I mean, unless you're brought in on the project, you're, you're kind of done with it, right? They can pretty much do whatever they want. I think because of this experience, um, Stephen King goes on, uh, goes on to executive produce things. So he can have his hands in it in just a little bit. But in this case, I think that what Stanley Kubrick did was take a Stephen King novel that was probably super long, just like a a Stephen King novel is, and he tightened it up, added his own themes and what he wanted to say. And there was a lot he wanted to say, apparently, uh, throughout this film. And he uh, changed it to what he interpreted. And I think it is a solid story. In around 1997, Stephen King stopped talking smack about The Shining, about Kubrick's Shining. Do you know the reason why? Because of the miniseries. He needed the naming rights or he needed the rights back or something. To get the rights, uh, to get basically either Kubrick or Kubrick's estate to sign off the rights to him basically making the miniseries, he had to agree to not to stop publicly denouncing the movie and saying anything bad about the movie. But in that same contract that he had to agree to, he was still allowed to complain about Jack Nicholson. So I, I ponder that part of the reason why this is so uh, newsworthy, if you will, is we don't typically hear about the author disagreeing with the movie that gets made based on their book. And I think part of the reason why, in my opinion, why, why uh, Stephen is so upset about it is because it's a reflection of himself mm-hmm. because it's, a, it's indirectly his story. And he is looking at this character that is pretty much only a bad 
person and doesn't seem to have any redeeming qualities. And so, therefore, is it potentially a reflection that he, Stephen King, is a bad person? Yeah. I mean, it could be portrayed that way. Well, that moves us right into what I was saying earlier about the casting. Uh, Exactly what you're saying, Professor. King's uh, vision of Jack Torrance was just an everyday guy who basically falls into madness through the influence of the hotel. So what we get from Jack Nicholson is he's already feels like a bad guy. He already feels like a little bit crazy, even from the start of the movie. That's who you get when you put Jack Nicholson in a movie. He's always the crazy guy. And then you have Shelley or Shelley Duvall, uh, who King's character for Wendy, the his description of her was she was strong, she was independent, and she didn't take shit from anyone. She was a professional type woman. That's not who Shelley Duvall played in this movie. So I can see why he was very frustrated with the casting of this movie. Yeah, but as a story, when you watched it, not knowing that didn't matter. Well, instantly I disliked Jack. Right, and, you, and you're the beginning of the movie. You're supposed to. You're supposed to. Well, in the movie version. Yes, that's what I'm talking about. That's what we're talking about. We're yeah. talking about the movie version. Not knowing the history of it or what Stephen King intended, mm-hmm. taking The Shining as a movie on its own, does that bother you that we knew Jack was bad from the beginning and that Shelley Duvall's character was meek? Well, no, the, the thing that bothered me, even if I took everything out that I know of the book, what bothered me is I didn't get the relationship between Jack and Wendy. So it was one he of those things you just... He was an asshole, and the fact that she just sat there and took it and took it and took it bothered me throughout the whole movie. Yeah, and I, I think in, in those terms, uh, any movie portraying that is going to bother you. Yeah. What about you? I, I looked at her as somebody who is probably in somewhat of an abusive relationship. The longer you linger in that type of an environment, the more broken down a person has a tendency potentially to become, which makes it that much more difficult to pull yourself out of it. Absolutely. I agree. Not knowing the differences between the characters from the book to the film did not bother me whatsoever. Uh, To your point, Don, I think that Kubrick did a perfect job of taking the story and manipulating it into a way that he knew would work well on screen. Right. He made it cinematic. Yes. And we've said kind of through this whole series that we've been talking about Stephen King, that his books are hard to adapt. And so this might be, in my opinion, the best one, even though it's the furthest one from the novel. Arguably, yes. Because as a movie, re-watching it, I was blown away again. Jack Nicholson's performance, I mean, come on, right? Creepy and just fucking psycho. And he, he he's playing it like very carefree. You know what I mean? And then I will admit Shelley Duvall's uh, weak Wendy got on my nerves after a while. And uh, (laughs) this movie is probably, I don't know, 20 minutes too long. But, you know, uh, overall, I thought the casting was was spot on. And I love Scatman Carruthers. I mean, I love that relationship. When you say that you love Jack Nicholson's performance, don't you feel like he always plays that kind of role? Yeah, but he did this first. 
Yeah, but I'm just saying, this is like the character you see in all of his movies. Yeah, all the movies after this one. I'm saying even One Flew Over Cuckoo's Nest, which was before this one, he was the same kind of psycho character. Yeah, that is Jack Nicholson. Yeah. So you I'm know how much, you know much of the Joker I saw in this? Mm-hmm. Or uh, his character from e- uh, Witches of Eastwick? But I don't care because it's Jack Nicholson. Okay. Yeah, totally a one-two punch having Nicholson establishing who his persona is on screen. It is solidified after this. If, yeah. you, if you have Nicholson in your movie, this is what you're getting. Yeah, 100%. Do, do you guys have a favorite Jack Nicholson role? Favorite oh, Jack wow. Nicholson movie? The Departed. That's a great question. I think I'd have to go with the Joker. I really liked him as the Joker in Batman. As of right now, I think it's The Shining because it's probably the most uh, fresh in my memory. Mm-hmm. But yeah, probably The Shining. You? Uh, probably the most vivid for me is uh, A Few Good Men. Oh, another solid choice. Colonel Jessup. Oh, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. What did you think of the casting of Danny Lloyd? Uh, It was good. Uh, I thought that kid did a great job, actually. Uh, He had some hard scenes to pull off, and I really think that the scenes with him and uh, Halloran are are better than what you would expect. Here's a curious thing. Stanley Kubrick was so protective of uh, of Danny that um, he didn't realize it until many years later that The Shining was a horror movie. Oh, how funny. How funny. Yeah, he was pretty. He was really protective of the girls as well. Oh, yeah. yeah. I had heard that before my most recent rewatch, and knowing that, seeing his performance, it, it kind of gives it a little extra magic to it, like that Kubrick was able to elicit a pretty good performance from a very young actor that <laughs> he didn't even know he was supposed to be in a horror in movie. a horror movie yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah for sure one of the things i read was uh you know kubrick being such a perfectionist he like any with any of his scenes he would do at least a hundred takes with each actor and got to the point where like scatman carruthers when the scene when it was finally done he would break down crying that it was just finally done the kids never experienced any of that. They just had fun and good times the whole time they were filming. Yeah. Well, I should hope so. I mean, <laughs> there's a line, right? <laughs> if you're going to do a take a hundred times, don't put a kid in it. But I do know that one scene where the, the tennis ball rolls up to Danny's toys. Yeah. They had to film that 50 times. So would you get the perfect trajectory? Yeah. And the ball just to tap, tap the toys. Uh, one thing I did notice uh, going into this uh, viewing Almost every subject of the frame is dead center. Yeah, uh, he likes doing that. He does. His shots are so nicely composed. You know what I mean? Um, It's definitely a 70s movie, and it definitely feels like a 70s movie, but it's it's beautiful. I I still appreciate this uh, cinematography uh, throughout this film. It's so vivid, the colors throughout the entire movie, and it's very bright. Yeah, there's not a lot of dark scenes except for maybe outside nor- towards the end. But uh, his use of color and lighting throughout the film is is immersive. Yeah. Well, you know, I I had to make Julie watch this movie with me, and that's the first thing that she said was uh, that all of the colors, the patterns, everything was so vivid and pleasing to her. Yeah, and everything is so precise. Mm-hmm. Right. That. Every frame is set decorated, and it is exactly what Kubrick wants to see. And chances are, there's a meaning to something in every shot. So conversely, in in having all those takes, I believe it was the 
the cinematographer was commenting on about all those takes that he didn't mind. And he said if we wanted to do a hundred of them or do a thousand of them, he would be okay with that because he thinks that this is an opportunity. Can he do it better? Can he make it exactly right? And so he just looked at it as practice. Yeah, that's awesome. That's got to be the most perfect man to work with, Stanley Kubrick. I mean, if he's willing to do that many takes and welcomes it, I mean, that's a good pairing. Yeah, I get annoyed after five takes. So there you go. The uh, the scene that had the most takes? 127. Up the stairs. Yeah, the Walking stairs. backwards with the baseball bat. Yeah. 147. It was, it was something like that. 147, 49, something like that. One shot. Had to be timed. Had to be perfect. One little... And you got to start all over again. Shelly Duvall, after it was all done, uh, she ended up being dehydrated because she had cried so much. Yeah. And she uh, she had blisters on her hands from holding the bat for so long. Yeah. Uh, I mean, apparently that's the movie that got her to quit acting. Well, she's, she, she's, she's, there's a lot of trauma there for her. She said that she practically had a nervous breakdown by the end of the filming, was losing her hair, lost a lot of weight. There is a making the shining making of the shining. I think a it's documentary. Done, yeah. yeah. Uh, Kubrick's wife or daughter or something is like Vivian Kubrick daughter. Yep. Yeah. Have you seen it? Yes. It's fascinating. Very. Yeah. Because it's not, it's not like your regular uh, documentary making of it's actually the making of, and you're watching them in takes and you're watching them. It's very gorilla. Yeah. Yeah. Did you see it? I've seen parts of it. Yeah. Have you seen it? No, I have not. That's pretty good. I'm, but now I want to watch it. You do see, there's literally a take of Shelley Duvall pulling clumps of hair out of her head from the stress of them filming the bathroom scene yeah. with the axe. Or or the whole misunderstanding about him saying action and her coming out of the door and he gets pissed, mm-hmm. right? So, yeah, very, yeah, very interesting. Very that was interesting. one thing I was a little scared of when we said we were going to do this movie is we could spend hours talking about Kubrick, about his methodology, about how meticulous he is. Uh, I mean, like you said, every single frame of this movie has something extra beyond, obviously, like you said, there's, it's very focused on the subject in the center of the screen, but there's so much around them framing them. And it makes you wonder how is everything intentional? Uh, are there accidents? Because uh, Stanley Kubrick seems to be that type of person that everybody thinks every single inch of what's on the screen is intentional. Jack Torrance takes a winter caretaker position at the remote Overlook Hotel in the Rocky Mountains, which closes every winter season. After his arrival, manager Stuart Ullman advises Torrance that a previous caretaker, Charles Grady, killed his family and himself in the hotel. In Boulder, Jack's son, Danny, has a premonition and seizure. Jack's wife, Wendy, tells the doctor about a past incident when Jack dislocated Danny's shoulder during a drunken rage. The incident convinced Jack to stop drinking alcohol. Before leaving for the seasonal break, head chef Dick Halloran informs Danny of a telepathic ability the two share, which he calls shining. Halloran tells Danny the hotel has a shine due to residues from unpleasant past events and warns him to avoid room 237. Our movie opens up with driving up that Oregon highway uh, with all that scenery and the background and everything. And I felt those shots were stunning. And one of the things that Julie and I were talking about was they didn't have drones back then. So that was a helicopter must have been following that car, filming those whole sequences. And I thought it was just amazing colors and shots. Yeah, it was a great shot. Definitely a helicopter shot. Yeah. 
it's very beautiful. I like how the film just starts and you're already rolling across the landscape. Um, it's immediately uneasy. The, the sound, the music, the synth is unsettling. Oh, that score is absolutely fantastic. It makes it even more epic than the visual that you were looking at. Those big horns and the synth that you were talking about. Yeah, absolutely. Great opening. It feels very haunting. I took away from the opening scene that we are very, very isolated and we are going to be on a very remote situation that is going to not be easy. Yeah, for sure. Thanks. The mountains are very intimidating, uh, as is the landscape. We see snow as they were climbing up the mountain, so we know it's getting cold. Um, and part part of the music makes is reminiscent of um, almost like Native American chanting, but it's heavily distorted and uh, eerie. Uh, it may or may not be an actual reference to anything Native, but that's kind of what it evokes to me. Yeah. yeah well, they sure. did say at one time that the... A uh, hotel was built on with a Native American cemetery or yeah, burial, burial ground. ground. Yeah. Uh, and then we get to see the hotel. Jack goes in for his interview and, you know, the conversation uh, interview seems to go well. And, and this is where I was kind of noticing uh, during they would cut to Jack, cut to the boss, cut to the dude in the chair. They were all right in the center of the fucking frame. You know what I mean? And then they would cut to a wide and everything was symmetrical. And you could see, you know, all the frames on the windows and this, that, and the other. Uh, I did appreciate, uh, you know, the the dolly shots when, like, Jack's walking into the hotel or we're in the lobby and we can just see the sheer massive size of this hotel. Uh, what did you guys think of the interview scene? I thought it was strong. I appreciated the uh, cinematography of having the, uh, the hotel being exposed to us oh so briefly the way that it was. The other part I enjoyed about the interview was we got to meet Wendy, Danny, and Tony. The interview room is also where we get our first noticeable anomaly. Uh, there's a window behind Ullman that physically should not be possible. Right. And once you once you kind of see that and accept that, the more you watch this film, every right turn and left turn that they take shouldn't be physically possible either. Yeah, I was thinking about that too. Yeah, so that and it's, it's a great little bit that Kubrick throws in there. He's already fucking with you. The interview room is also where we meet, is it Bill? I think so. The, the caretaker head during the right, yeah. on, on season, during the season. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> his name's Bill Watson. He looks haggard. Uh, there's a couple shots of Bill as Jack and Ullman are having their conversation about the hotel itself. And the way his face is angled, it's like his part of his face is lopsided. Uh, he doesn't look like he wants to be there. And, uh, you know, we only see a few shots involving Bill Watson and it clicked for me on this most recent rewatch and Ullman even mentions it, that he just wants to go home. Yeah. He's done for the season. He's, yeah. he's tired. You can you get the feel of that, uh, as everyone's trying to get out of the hotel. That's the exact impression that I got is everyone was bustling around and they even made a comment of Everybody gets out of there super quick. So you think everything is happy-go-lucky, but no, they are getting out and something's going on. Well, no, they just want to get out because it's vacation time. There is something that I wanted to bring up. Uh, after this interview, if we're, we can move along, uh, and Jack gets the job and tells his family, and then they start the trip up. Interesting enough was the story telling the story of the Donner Party. 
Did you kind of catch the symbolism in that whole thing? There is symbolism in this entire film. Mm-hmm. So, yes, I, I did catch that. Um, kind of a family freezing to death, maybe. Uh, but they were. It, it was more than family. I mean, it was a settler's. Yeah. I mean, but yeah. It's just, but people freezing to death, and could that be considered? The, okay, let me stop you right there. This whole fucking movie is foreshadowing, bud. Danny having the premonition, right, at home uh, before they go up. Uh, he gets to see what's going to happen or what has happened. And it kind of makes him afraid to go up. And this is telling us the audience that, you know, Danny has special abilities, if you will. And it's in this scene, uh, when the doctor comes in to, uh, look at Danny, it's revealed that Jack has hurt Danny before and that he's, uh, I guess a recovering alcoholic, the thing that stood out most to me during this conversation is that when Shelly Duvall is telling the story of the dislocated shoulder, her cigarette has the perfect ash. Mm-hmm. It just keeps I getting bigger. That. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. One thing that I took away from that scene, and it was kind of a thought that stuck in my head, they said that Jack Nicholson was a former, or Jack Torrance was a former school teacher and has decided to quit teaching to be a writer. I'm getting the feeling that his alcoholism led to him losing his job. You think? Mm-hmm. That's a great deduction. Alcohol equals destruction. It's typically how it goes. Uh, I am thankful because I guess in the book, we go into a great big long detail on why he gets fired. <laughs> and I'm glad mm-hmm. we don't do that here. They get up to the hotel and this is the bit where they're kind of taking the tour and everyone's showing them around. Uh, did you guys know in the book that that maze does not exist? That's yes. all comes from Kubrick's. Right. It's all, just, I guess in the book, it's all just topiaries and, yeah. and yeah, yeah. animals and things like that. It's there's no maze. Yeah. Yeah. So a uh, good visual uh, again, Kubrick thinking, you know, what's going to look great cinematically. And you know, the hedge, uh, the hedge maze looks pretty good. Would you have gone in that maze? I think so. Maybe not during the snow, but maybe in the broad daylight <laughs> when the sun's out. <laughs> but on a much lighter note, did you notice that they came up in their little Volkswagen and all the luggage that was piled up there? How did the fuck did all of that get fit I into the car with that. the family? There is no way that much luggage fits in that V-Dub with the three people. But yeah, it's a it's it's a delightful tracking shot that we get as we are introduced as uh, as Wendy is introduced to the hotel lobby, just right. so beautifully shot. Yeah, mm-hmm. and then during all of this, we get introduced to Dick Halloran, the head chef, and uh, he has a moment with Danny, and he kind of says, uh, "Well, first of all, he calls him Doc, right?" And Shelley Duvall is like, "How how do you know that we call Danny Doc?" And he makes something up, you know. Bugs Bunny, whatever. Uh, but it turns out that both Danny and Halloran have the shine. This brings up my first, I don't know if it's an issue or first question about this movie is they kind of present the idea that the hotel screws with Danny because he has the shine, that he, you know, is shining and all of that stuff. Well, if Dick also has the shining, how come the hotel had really hadn't fucked with him? Do you have an answer? I would I would contest that Danny, uh, as a child, and I think many of us would recognize that children are more susceptible to spiritual energies in general. I think it's because we all have these inner thoughts that we choose to act or not act upon. And all of these things are choices that we choose to make. And with Jack and his challenges, 
he ends up succumbing to those inner voices when he is weak. Dick Halloran, he is choosing not to act on those inner voices. And the hotel probably has not been successful at having him choose to act on those dark, evil thoughts. Yeah, he's been able probably to control his shine, if uh, lack of a better phrase. Well, he's had longer with it. Right, right. And I think Danny's right. Kids are more susceptible. And because uh, his conversation, when he's talking to Halloran about it, he goes, does this, does the hotel scare you? Halloran pauses because it does scare him, but he's got to, he's got to pull off a brave front for the kid as not to scare the kid. Right. So he he has a good answer coming back. Oh, a hundred percent. His answers are great. Talking about the burned toast. Yeah. Well, he also, the the remnants of what's left behind. Absolutely. He also drops a couple of nuggets for us which is one he knows about room 237 he knows that something has been going on in that room so obviously he's had some experience the other thing i thought was interesting and again this comes from someone who doesn't know a whole lot about the book and has only seen this maybe i think this was my second time uh was that the shine is something genetic that his grandmother had had the shine so this starts to make me think in my head does Jack have the shine? Does the father have the shine as well and just doesn't realize it? And maybe that's one of the reasons why the hotel really gets to him and really you know communicates with him because he has the shine. Because later on in the movie, not only does he have a premonition, but you know other things, strange things seem to be happening around Jack. I don't think Jack has the shine because there's nothing to indicate that he would. He had and, that premonition dream. Well, the hotel has the shine. Right, so the hotel is powerful, and Jack's not a powerful guy. He's weak. He's an alcoholic. He's a fucking uh, psycho. <laughs> um, so easy, easy target. I think it's when uh, Jack is sitting at the bar, and he says, "I would sell my soul for, for a, a glass of beer." Of beer. Mm-hmm. I think that's what opens him up to, and the hotel recognizes that, and that's when he, you know, f- not fully commits, but that's part of the uh descent into madness i i I personally don't think that jack has the shine because really nothing that i saw uh, would indicate that so that's just my own my own opinion i agree i'm I'm with don on that i don't i don't think there's anything that indicates jack has the shine it is an interesting idea that it would be hereditary um, but there's nothing that indicates it to us on screen one other thing i wanted to bring up real quick just a little piece of trivia uh I guess in the book, the room that uh, Dick Halloran tells Danny never to go into is room 217. Yeah. Uh, the hotel, I guess it was the Timberline Lodge that was used in Mountain Hood that was used for the outside shots and everything, insisted in the agreement that they use room 237 because that room didn't exist in the hotel. They thought that if he used 217, no one would ever rent that room. Well, now when people go to that hotel, they all insist they want 217. I'd like to go back to before we meet Dick Halloran. We do have another meeting that we are given when Danny is in the game room playing darts. And we get to see the twins for the first time. The Grady twins. Yeah. I I really appreciated the uh, summary that we got of what Shining is through Dick talking to Danny. That Uh was was, uh, pivotal for us, the audience, to have. Absolutely. Yeah, that was good. (laughs) The best part, I think, about that, you kind of bring it up, Professor, is that it makes it real. It makes it, oh, well, it's not just the kid being crazy or having some weird issue. 
you know, with this invisible friend of his, but there is something to this power that he has. Yeah, it validates what's been going on with this kid. Exactly. You know, and now he's kind of have has a mentor. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? So. And the awesome thing, the awesome thing about this moment is this is the first time room 237 is brought up. It's like, it's such a specific question. You know, it, it's, it's, uh, it's Chekhov's gun, if you will. Danny starts having frightening visions, including one of two twin sisters. Meanwhile, Jack's mental health deteriorates. He gets nowhere with his writing, is prone to violent outbursts, and has dreams of killing his family. Danny gets physically bruised after visiting an unlocked room 237 out of curiosity. Jack encounters a female ghost in the room, but blames Danny for self-inflicting the bruises. Jack is enticed back into drinking by the ghostly bartender Lloyd. Ghostly figures, including Delbert Grady, then begin appearing in the gold room. Grady informs Jack that Danny has reached out to Halloran using his talent and says that Jack must correct his wife and child. So once we hit this one month period, that's the last that we get of Jack being a decent person. Yeah. After, from, from here forward, there is no redeeming quality about him for us, the viewing audience, to you know feel anything for him in a positive way whatsoever. Yeah. It starts out, you know, with apathy and indifference towards his family. I mean, that's what we got before this. Apathy and indifference. And then after this, then then we get the rage and and the uh, the condescending behavior and and the abusiveness towards Wendy. Yeah, and you know, it it happens when uh, the snowstorm's coming in and Wendy hears it on the radio and she just wants to share it with Jack and it's that encounter uh, that they have that you can start to see, uh, you know, Jack's true nature. You know, she says it's going to snow and he's like, well, what the fuck do you want me to do about it? You know? And, and then she's still nice to him too. She offered, she's, she's like, trying. Okay, okay, well I'll come back. I'll bring you a sandwich. Yeah. And then she's like, don't fucking come back here. When you hear the typing and the clickety clack, stay the fuck out. And I was thinking, yeah, dude, that's what I would say. Well, well, that takes me right to what Professor was saying earlier, and it's exactly my thought at that point, is that she's been so abused and so just mentally scarred by this man that she just takes the abuse because most women would have already been, been halfway down the mountain if a guy talked to them like that. Uh, maybe. It seems somewhat the norm for past generations. I, I know in my family, my grandfather and grandmother had a very similar dynamic to what we saw in the Colorado room there. So to today, does that fly? Absolutely not. No. 1980. Yeah, it's just kind of the norm. We do get one other thing that happens around this time, which is, and I is a huge thing when it comes to the shining Danny cruising around on his trike. Yes. Oh, iconic. Those shots are crazy. I and, love those shots. And I love, I love these shots because he's taking a left where there shouldn't be a fucking left. If you're thinking about a layout of a hotel, you know, and Kubrick does this on purpose and disorientates you. It disorientated me. You know what I mean? The The only time I really knew where we were is when we were in the main room. In the lobby. Yeah, when he's doing the clickety-clack, right? Mm-hmm. Because everything kind of had to go through that to get to the kitchen. He had to do that. Uh, to get to the boiler room through the kitchen, he had to go through that. So, yeah, the fucking... Uh, the low tracking shot. And then, and then we're a little bit behind. And then the, uh, the go, 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 when he's on the hardwood floor and then it goes silent when he's on the oh, carpet yeah. and then it goes back. Love that. Nice. That's great Love sound that design. Yeah. You know? And he's center of the frame when he's going. So yeah. Oh, fucking iconic. So the second trike trip stops 
at room 237. And then the kid has the balls to check the door. Wasn't it, the key in the locked. door? Not, not at this time. Oh, not this time. Uh, he comes back to it. Um, okay. But yeah, you're right. He, he's been told not to. The only time that we are not moving with the trike is when the camera stays at room 237 after he tries the door. So uh, back when he stops at room 237, that's Tuesday. And then now it's Thursday, and we have the tracking shot, uh, and uh, Wendy and Danny are running outside. Because it's snowing now. And and then from there, we get a medium shot of Jack to a close-up. It's, it's the one where he's in his black turtleneck, and it's, it takes about 30 seconds, and he doesn't blink, but you can see the fire flickering in the background. Yeah. Can I ask a quick question? And I got kind of lost with all the days, the times they kept showing. How long does this take place over? Do you guys know? Nope. It's about a week, I think. It's the whole, I mean, did the whole thing just happen in one week that he went crazy and was willing to kill his well, wife? The, the first card we get is one month later. And oh. then after that, then we get a succession of days and then we get the time of the day. Right. And then the next, uh, the next day is Saturday. And then this is when Wendy, she's talking to the ranger station about the snowstorm. And then we're following Danny on the trike again. And he rounds the corner, and there's the twins. Yeah. Oh, so good. Famous, famous fucking shot. You know, that's what you think of when you think of The Shining. Yes. The girls at the end of the hallway. Yeah. And then the other moment that follows right after this is the bloody hallway with the girls dead. Yep. Holy shit. And now Danny, I mean, he doesn't know what to do. You know, he can't control this. So initially he can't remember what visions Tony showed him. And this is what Tony had shown him. But this is what Tony was telling him was going to happen. Right. And we're reminded of what Halloran told Danny. It's just like pictures in a book. He keeps telling himself. Tony tells him, remember, Danny, it's not real. Right. And he tells Tony that he's scared. Right. Yep. I remember that. As he should be. And so uh, Danny makes his way into room 237. And at that time, Jack is having a dream. And Wendy is downstairs checking the boiler room. Uh, I'm just going to throw this out real quick. How did the fuck does she hear him? It's loud in there. It's a loud room. She should be down a level of stairs, through some hallways, in a fucking hotel, and she can hear him screaming? Maybe it echoes. Oh, for fuck's sakes. I didn't buy it. It's a weird scene. Uh, Took it, me out of it. it just Really? Yeah, the uh, him getting her attention by screaming like that from where he is to in relation to where she is. Me, myself, I know I'm nitpicky, whatever. It just it took me out for a second. I think it continues to play on the things that don't make sense in this movie. Um, you know, I, I think we'd be expecting Jack to be handling the boilers, which is really his only job at the hotel. Is to switch the boilers on and off. Right, but I've already accepted the fact that Jack wants to write. And if you hear the clickety-clack, stay the fuck out of the room. So someone's got to take care of the hotel. Uh, There's also grotesque uh, pornography posted on the wall in the boiler room. Uh Notice that. Uh, My take on that is that Stanley Kubrick is perverting Stephen King's story in this sense. Because, uh, I mean, fucking spoiler alert. In the book, the boiler blows up the hotel at the end. Right. So, but it doesn't in the film. So, is that a perversion of King's plot? Probably. There, there's other instances of uh, Kubrick giving Stephen King the middle finger. And then after that, he goes and he is 
he's visiting his he's he's with his mother and he wants to go get his fire truck be very very quiet because dad is sleeping right and then in he goes and this is a scene that Danny was referring to a little bit earlier as a potential undercurrent or maybe it was you Don talking about a potential undercurrent of abuse yeah because you know Danny he never ever comes across is feeling comfortable or happy about anything. I mean, he's always, always talking so flat and lifeless. And clearly he is not comfortable around his father at all. And so where does that stem from? Does that stem from visions or does that stem from a rough past with his father? Right. If I may, I have a few different angles I view this scene from. I think in terms of Jack Nicholson's acting and his delivery of his lines in this scene, if it weren't for the music making it very clear that there's something nefarious, if something evil happening, Jack Nicholson's really just a tired dad. He's exhausted. As mom said before he went up to get his truck, you know, he only went to bed a couple hours ago and clearly he hasn't slept. He's sitting up in bed. And to push back on one of the earlier comments, Prof, I think that there are a couple very small moments that show Jack's humanity before it's completely erased. And this could be one of them. I I think it's hard to tell because Jack Nicholson dances this line of mania and tired, exhausted father so well. Um, You know, Danny is a little bit deadpan. It is weird because he's not a particularly emotive kid, but in this scene in particular, he's very dry, very quiet. Um, but when, when Danny asks him, he's asking him questions, you know, I think it would be natural for a father to get kind of annoyed by question after question, especially what? when he said, especially when he says, I'm just tired. Danny asks him, do you not feel good? And he says, no, I'm just tired. Well, why don't you just go to sleep? <laughs> That's an annoying question. That's an annoying question, but he's patient. He He's patient. He keeps sitting there calmly with his son on his lap. He asks him, you'd never hurt Ma and I, would you? And he questions whether Wendy put that idea in his head or not. He tells him no, but when he tells Danny, I love you more than anything in the world, it really is dancing this line between exhausted father and homicidal maniac. I kind of thought the same thing of trying to figure out whether or not this was the good Jack or the bad Jack, you know, the Jack that's being manipulated by the hotel. And I felt like I kind of got the answer right at the end of that conversation when uh, something about, I think Danny asked, do you like it here? Or, you know, something, do you, do you love staying here? And Jack's response was, I wish we could stay here forever and ever. Yeah. And so right there that told me, oh yeah, the hotel owns, owns his soul basically. Yeah. Well, uh, to your point, Danny, uh, you see the world with rose-colored glasses. There's no exhausted father there at all. Um, I, I didn't see it. Uh, he was, and and it, it's on purpose because you have the music and you have the way he's delivering his lines. And when he says, uh, you wouldn't hurt me and mom, would you? There's a moment where he pauses and there's nothing but evil there that I saw. So um, I, I think that throughout this whole thing, uh, Jack was never a good guy. Jack has always been just, he's had a rough life, right? And that's what alcohol will do to you. I never, I never thought of him as a caring or loving father at all. 
So I, I did misspeak about uh, the ball rolling on Monday because the ball rolling happens on Wednesday, which that's what gets us to room 237. Uh, Danny going into room 237, right? Somebody put the key in and opened it up. And at the same time, uh, Jack is having his nightmare, his nightmare, which Wendy somehow hears. And uh, uh, Danny comes walking out and it looks like he has been assaulted. Um, what'd you guys think of this bit? I will again push back and say, I think this is our last glimpse of his humanity. That's what I think too. A vulnerable moment where you see the last shred, Jack Torrance, the last shred of a person of him because he's tormented about his family dying. He's genuinely terrified of the dreams he just had. He doesn't want to hurt his family. He's, he's almost weeping. I mean, he's so scared and I, I really think that, this, this is the hinge moment where he woke up from this dream. He's terrified. Wendy, actually in, an, in a more typical Wendy role, similar to the book, is strong. She's trying to be there for him and comfort him and tell him she literally says everything's going to be okay. And that's when Danny walks in sucking his thumb. He's just been harmed by whatever was in 237. He's catatonic. and Sweater's torn. His neck looks rough. Wendy doesn't know what to do. She's put in this moment where she's she tells Jack, hold on, let me just go take care of him. And then all of a sudden, her attention shifts 100% to Danny. What happened? He's not talking. She hugs him very sweetly. I mean, this is one of the most tender moments of the film where you just see a mother who does not know what to do other than just try and show her son she loves him. And in that moment, she flips a switch and starts accusing Jack of doing this to Danny. And when they pan to Jack sitting in the chair, still reeling from this horrific vision he's just had of killing his family, he's just like, what the fuck? How, like, he's instantly like, how, why would you ever say, like, I'm, I'm cl- he's already hor- horrified by the idea of ever hurting his family. And in that moment, his wife is accusing him of hurting their son. And he fucking snaps. This is the turning point. And because he goes to the gold room. Once he gets to the bar, the bar is his, it, he, it's the precipice for him because the alcohol is his forbidden fruit, if you will. Uh-huh. And that forbidden fruit, once he drinks it, you know, it, it's, it's tempting. It, it's calling to him and he wants it. And then once he does that, it's, you're going to have severe consequences after this, after taking your forbidden fruit. Right, And I will contest that much like Pennywise and it, that the hotel feeds off of negative feelings, negative emotions, uh, the nightmares and the accusations of Jack hurting his son ignites his fears, it ignites his anger. He's walking down the corridor towards the gold room every few feet just physically... Yeah, reacting with such vigor, just how could how could she accuse me of doing something like this? So it, it really mm-hmm. like it's almost like the hotel's playing with him at this point. Well, it's because he's walking down that hallway every time he passes a mirror. Yes, he does that because he doesn't want he doesn't want to look at himself. That's one thing we because he knows about. he knows what he's already become or going to become. <clears throat> um, I, I think that bit that you're talking about, and then him going into the bar and finally uh, relinquishing control when he says, you know, I'd sell my soul. I I still think, I mean, that was very deliberately written, right? Sure. And it's after that he sees Lloyd, right? And so um, now now the hotel has him, 
Right. Now, yeah. Now he's fucked. Right. And it's during this time, if I'm not mistaken, that Wendy makes her way down and tells him what ja- uh, what Danny told her about how he was attacked in room 237. Yeah, that there's some strange woman who's been hiding in that room. And so he goes up to investigate. Mm-hmm. You know, and this this another this one is another uh, iconic scene. Uh, when you think of The Shining is when Jack Nicholson walks into the bathroom and he sees the naked lady. I I remember the first time I saw this, I remember that there was a lady and that she becomes an old lady. I didn't remember that there was full frontal nudity in this movie. And neither did I. I was really surprised by that. I kept thinking in 1980, that was even allowed. Did you blush? I don't think so. I I think you did. So when Wendy, she can, when she finds Jack in the gold room at this point, you know, she tells tells Jack what happens and you know, how does he respond to the, whoever it is that has attacked his, his son? He doesn't seem to show any concern whatsoever. He just seems annoyed about it. Yeah. Well, he is being possessed by a evil hotel. Is that an excuse? Maybe. Okay. So yeah, he, he, he gets up into the room and knowing what he already knows that this person should be the person responsible for attacking his son. What does he do? He is tempted to have his own carnal feelings and completely set aside what has happened to his son. Well, I think it's called boobs. That's that's usually man's downfall. Yeah, you know. And, and I don't and I don't mean to generalize all men because not all men like boobs, but boobs, boobs. And then he goes back to the gold room, and then he's talking to Lloyd, and he gets some shit spilled on him. I forget what it was called that scene walking up as he's walking through the corridor leading to the gold room and yeah. you hear the music in the background yes. and all the balloons yeah. and all the balloons. This is where we get to meet uh, Delbert Grady, which we have to assume is an ancestor of some sort to the other Grady that chopped up his daughters and wife. Right before this scene though, we have another iconic moment. Rad Ram, Rad Ram. The whole thing you were just saying about Grady and we're assuming it's an ancestor my first thought was this was the Grady. This this is just the ho- shows at the hotel when someone dies in the hotel. Uh, the story, the the TV show American Horror Story does this a lot in their stories that when someone dies, they just become absorbed. Their soul becomes absorbed by the hotel and they become part of it. So I just I figured this is Grady killed his family, shot his head off, and now he works at the hotel as a spirit. Uh, yeah, I mean, he does say that he has two daughters and a wife. Um, and he tells Jack that, you know, you're the caretaker, not this Grady guy. Cause Jack's talking to him about it, you know? And, uh, this kind of leads into, you know, questions about what's really going on here. And basically Grady is telling Jack that, you need to get your wife and kid into check because they're doing shit and we don't like it. And your son has a fucking talent and he's calling in some outside help. Wendy finds Jack's manuscript with all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy written over and over again. When Jack threatens her life, Wendy knocks him unconscious with a baseball bat and locks him in the kitchen pantry. But she and Danny cannot leave due to Jack having previously sabotaged the hotel's two-way radio and snowcat. Back in their hotel room, Danny is saying red rum multiple times and even writes the word on the bathroom door. 
Wendy sees the word in the mirror and realizes the word spells out murder backwards. Jack is freed by Grady and goes after Wendy and Danny with an axe. Danny escapes outside through the bathroom window and Wendy fights off Jack with a knife when he breaks through the door. Halloran, having flown back to Colorado after Danny's telepathic SOS, reaches the hotel in another snowcat. His arrival distracts Jack, who ambushes and murders O'Halloran in the lobby, then pursues Danny into the hedge maze. Wendy runs through the hotel looking for Danny, encountering the hotel's ghost and a vision of cascading blood similar to Danny's premonition. In the hedge maze, Danny misleads Jack and hides behind a snowdrift while Jack follows a false trail. Danny and Wendy reunite and leave in Halloran's snowcat, leaving Jack to freeze to death in the maze. In a photograph in the hotel hallway, Jack is pictured standing amidst a crowd of party revelers from July 4th, 1921. Roll credits. So while Jack is having his conversation in the restroom with Grady, back in the apartment, Wendy is trying to hatch a plan about getting out of there. And then once again, we hear the red, red, red rum. But at this time, we get this heartbeat that starts. And the heartbeat carries out pretty much through the rest of the movie. And so I thought that was a, a really uh, uh, effective way of ratcheting up the anxiety, the, the tension, just to have this undercurrent of this. Doom, 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 doom. Yeah, the sound design in this and the way they uh, how they used the score was very effective. And so Wendy finds jack's manuscript and you know this another iconic scene from this movie is uh the realization that uh <laughs> jack's fucking crazy same thing over and over again hundreds and hundreds of pages this is what he's been doing this whole time so just before this we're given 8 a.m and so with it now we are down to not days but hours yeah we're given the 8 a.m and and uh dick he is, he's on his way. He's already in Colorado. He's in Denver and he ends up uh, having, you know, to, you know, make his way there still. But what I like about uh, having this morning is uh, he's, they're sitting there watching the Roadrunner and Wendy decides she's going to go talk to Jack, but she takes the baseball bat with her. Mm -hmm. So I thought, okay, this is going to be serious. Well, she still thinks there's someone out there choking her Choking people. Potentially. Right? Yeah. I mean, Jack tried to play it off as Danny did it to himself, but come on. So this is 1980 when this comes out. Computers are not a prevalent feature per se. So this manuscript, All Work and No Play, makes Jack a dull boy. I muse, and it puts a smile on my face to think that Stanley Krubick probably had several secretaries. Would you please type this over and over in different patterns, in different ways? Knowing Stanley Kubrick, every one of those pages was full of that sentence. Had to have been, right? If it were me, I would have been like two or three, got the shot, moved on, but not Stanley. You know that it was all fucking for real. Yeah, because Wendy, she flips through a lot of those pages. Exactly. And then there's Jack. How do you like it? That's my that's one of my favorite responses in this entire film. That just that one how do you like it? Like come on. <laughs> Some something that we often talk about in our podcast is method actors and method acting and everything like that. Do you know how they kept Jack Nicholson in such a bad mood to play this role? I do. They he, fed him cheese sandwiches and he hates cheese he sandwiches. Hates cheese sandwiches. He was fed them for weeks. So right after that, 
we have Jack berating Wendy, and then uh, she says, stay away from me, and we get the uh, the stair scene, and she finally connects with him, and down the steps he goes. Uh, such a great shot. You're working backwards. It's one shot. It's on the steady cam, and Nicholson's performance is fantastic here. And poor Shelley Duvall, right? I mean, she is just trying to hold it together this entire time and i mean she's a frail looking woman to begin with right i mean no offense it's just how, how it is and her swinging that bat you know oh it was, it was terrifying so uh as as he tumbles down the stairs she runs outside and then she realizes that the snow cat has been sabotaged not yet she has to drag yeah, him the dragging the, scene. I love, I like this scene uh, where she's dragging him to the pantry. She, oh yeah, yeah. She locks him in the pantry, which is fucking smart. And uh, he, he goes through all the uh, attic motions, right? Tries to be nice to her. And first off, he's like, open the door and I will forget this ever happened, you know? And luckily she's smart enough to say, fuck you. That shot. Kubrick had to be underneath Nicholson as he was uh, staring at the door trying to plead with Wendy. Uh-huh. And uh, it's maybe one of the most iconic shots of Nicholson's face being so evil because you can see him trying to figure out what to say to try and manipulate Wendy. Uh, even when he starts to cry, he says, I'm hurt real bad. Yeah, But you get to see his face as he's kind of like looking to the left and looking to the right, seeing if he can elicit some some sympathy from his wife. Yeah, and I like what she says. I'm going to take uh, Danny. We're going to go into town. I'm going to take the snowcat, and we'll bring a doctor back to you. And this is where Jack Nicholson drops the bomb on her. Yeah, a big surprise coming your way. Yeah. <laughs> and then the next time that we get is 4 p.m. And now... Dick, uh, Dick Halloran is on his way up in uh, either in his car or yeah, he's in the snowcat. He's, he's in the he, snowcat. And, th- and this is where we get to see uh, he's passing a collision on the yep. on the side of the highway. And this is another big fuck you to Stephen King from Stanley Kubrick. Uh, the car that's smushed is a red VW which is what the original color is of the VW that Jack Torrance drives in the novel. And then we have something very important happen to Jack. He has a conversation with Grady. I thought it was interesting that they didn't show Grady in this conversation. It was all Jack Nicholson in the food storage. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was just Grady talking to him from the other side of the door. And some people say this is the only thing in the movie that can't be explained explained away. away. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, that this would be the only true supernatural, like physical supernatural thing to happen in the movie where, with Grady letting him out of there. Some people have theories that it's Danny that actually comes down and lets him out of the food storage. Um, Danny is somewhat catatonic up in his bed at this point, so I, I don't like that theory so much. Well, one of the theories that I read, uh, again, this goes back to what you totally don't believe, which is that Jack has a bit of the shine in if you go to Dr. Sleep, you can see that people with the shine can actually physically move things. And so one of the theories I read that was further evidence that uh, Jack actually somehow unlocks the door with his mind. Well, they're retconning it because of Dr. Sleep. So it goes back to me, or it goes back for me, that he doesn't have the shine and that Grady does let him out. And I've bought 
the story so far up to here and that he's seeing naked women and in a ballroom and actually getting shit spilled on him and there there's there's no rules well the so bruises on, i i totally buy that it was grady who let him out that and the physical bruises on danny's neck shows that these spirits can take physical form well that still might have been jack or danny so, and then we get this moment with danny He's full on red rum and he picks up a knife. How would you like to wake up to that? Especially that kid, right? I mean, he plays Crypty so fucking well, right? I mean, he's a creepy fucking kid. Did you guys notice uh, Kubrick likes to zoom a lot? And we zoom in on people's eyes or, or, or close-ups yeah, of their yeah, faces. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and this is one of them that we get Shelley Duvall's reaction and uh, it's murder backwards. Mm-hmm. So What a wonderful reveal. Yeah. Oh, classic. Iconic. Iconic. Absolutely iconic. Red rum, red yeah. rum, and then we—that's that's when we get Danny back, right? Because it's no longer Tony. You, you hear the the voice inflection go up. That's what I thought was that was the transition of Tony back to Danny because the voice changes. Mm-hmm. And then Jack shows up, and this is the scene. This right? is the scene. Uh, luckily for Danny and Wendy, the snow was so thick. And so plentiful that they were able to get Danny out the window and just slide right down. I mean, he's what, five stories up? Didn't that look fun? That just looks so much fun, right? Uh, But Wendy, Wendy can't fit because naturally the window doesn't open all the way. I read that Jack Nicholson was, I guess, in a previous profession was a firefighter. And so when... They set up the door. They set it up to be kind of a... A prop door. A prop door that he wouldn't be able to chop through, but he was so good with the axe, he was going through that door too fast. Those are some great shots. Mm-hmm. And let's talk about that, because I just dig the way the camera moves with the axe on each swing. Yeah. So, so effective. And then every once in a while, we'll cut behind the door, and we'll see what's going on through the slits because of the damage, and you'll see the axe coming in at you. Mm-hmm. It's a great camera work. Well, what I really liked, the camera angle I liked most, was when Shelley Duvall was in the back of the bathroom against the wall, and every so often you could just see the axe head coming in through the door with her kind of looking at that axe. I mean, just the lo- the way they lined it up I thought was really well done. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think that's the most iconic shot of the movie, I would contest, uh, and solidified Shelley Duvall as a scream queen. Perhaps one of the greatest scream queens. I would have never guessed Shelley Duvall is a scream queen. You make an interesting point. Yeah, I can see it. I will agree with you on uh, the most iconic shot in this film. And it's when he sticks his head in the fucking hole, right? Yep. Which he ad-libbed and Stanley Kubrick didn't get it. Because mm-hmm. he's from England and Johnny Carson's not a big thing over there. <laughs> right. So, but they left it. It works. And now it'll forever be synonymous with Jack Nicholson in The Shining. And then right after this, we have the snowcat showing up, and the rumbling of that snowcat alerts everybody that there is somebody else here. And I almost had a problem with, like, how the fuck did they hear this? The bathroom window's open, it's snow, I'll, I'll get the, uh, the echo off of that, yeah. I'll buy that this time. One thing I appreciate, and you guys have talked about Jack, you know, Jack Nicholson's performance, is you could really see on his face, when he hears the snowcat, what do I do? Do I keep going after her to kill her? Do I go downstairs and deal with this? And you could just see that dilemma on his face where he's going back and forth. Which my first thought was, why am I not unlocking the door, putting the axe in her skull, and then walking down and taking care of the rest of the business? Why leave her alive? Because he wants to get the boy too. Well, he, no, I get that 100%, but he, she's right there. But he did reach in. 
to right. try, he did reach in and then she got him with a knife. Right. Well, I got a fucking axe. Yeah, there would have been a little bit of a fight there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just saying. In proximity to where he is and she is and where Halloran is, I would have killed her first. At this point, I also don't think he's thinking very rationally. That very well may be true. (laughs) I think he's very clear in his decision. I think he is delighted with the option of who he's going to kill first. And I think he knows he needs to go out and take care of whatever's going on outside first because now there's a means of escape. Yeah, maybe. Plus, he's already been clued in of who's probably coming. Yeah. And this this scene, this bit pissed me off. Halloran makes the tremendous effort to get back to the fucking Overlook in impossible conditions, makes it, and Cooper kills him right off. That was a definitely shock value. That was a... I did not see that coming. But I also thought uh, Halloran served his purpose. He was the distraction. He was the no- distraction to let them get away. Well, maybe. Yeah, so a, a little bit like uh, an axe to the chest. It was a punch to the gut to have him go out so quickly. And then what it really comes down to is the only thing that he was really here for was to get us transportation so they can get away. But, but well, here's another thought. Well, I mean, he's in the movie to A, explain the shine, and yes. give us give our characters a way out. But another thought that I had was that Halloran had the shine, yet he didn't see that coming. Yeah, well, maybe his shine didn't allow him to have premonitions. Yeah. He said that all shines were kind of different, and that's a good way of explaining things away. <laughs> Why does Danny go back inside to hide? Because it's fucking cold outside. And there's no way off the fucking mountain. What would you do? And he's a stupid kid. I'm just... oh, I disagree. I think he's smart for going back inside. There's so many more places to hide yes. in that hotel than there is outside. And it's fucking cold. But after he feels or witnesses Halloran dying, he lets out that scream. And that's what clues Jack in to where Danny is. And then this is where the chase begins. Yep. Right? And so Danny makes it outside. and. Jack follows. Intense. Absolutely. Crazy intense. It's beautifully filmed as they're running down the uh, maze. Our subject is in the center of the frame and everything is proportioned equally. It's so pretty. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I liked the chase scene. I didn't like the death scene. Yeah, well, I mean. I thought it looked cheesy the way it ended at that scene. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. I, I, I didn't mind it. I thought it was a good end fucking so smart of danny right i'm gonna cover up my tracks and then he's been in the maze before he had been his mom in the maze so he knew the maze so that uh tony had been in the maze with him too there you go so tony got danny out maybe who knows it never it's never explained i think this is the it's a very intricately lit set in the maze uh in terms of the going from light to dark light to dark light to dark Uh, beautifully done beautifully done uh, and as Jack gets lost, it gets darker and darker and the lights are farther away from the camera. Doing my research, one of the things that I read was they used 900 tons of salt and crushed styrofoam for that snow in that maze scene. Meanwhile, back inside, Wendy hears a bunch of chanting. And so she has to go investigate, of course. And this is where the hotel decides to show Wendy that... It's not playing around. Is this a sign? I I kind of took it as one way of, uh, as Jack Nicholson gets crazier and, you know, kills Halloran and all that, and all this energy, this negative energy is feeding the hotel, that the fact that now she is starting to see things 
that the hotel has become that much stronger? I think the hotel has always been strong, and I think that having uh, Jack Nicholson's character in it drives it. Mm-hmm. So possibly, absolutely. And I, I would say Wendy's also her most vulnerable mentally at this point. I mean, her husband just attempted to kill her and her son with an axe, so she is that's All terrified. kinds of fucked up, yeah. That's how I took it. And because she's vulnerable, then the hotel is going to assert itself towards her. And, and so while all of this is going on, you hear Jack Nicholson outside continually yelling after Danny. And, you know, uh, it goes on on. And then Danny finally makes it out. And Jack Nicholson gets lost. Danny and mom get in the snowcat and leave. And Jack freezes to death. I want to talk a little bit about the haunted house aspect of the hotel showing itself. Why did we need the bear, the guy in the bear suit? In the book... It's a man in a dog costume, and Danny hears them having sex through the wall. Right. Um, so there, it is a callback to that. I think it was just a weird, bizarre, something that you wouldn't expect to see. Well, maybe, well, then maybe he has a thing for bears, too, because they're throughout the entire fucking movie. It's also probably for shock value and just to unnerve the audience sure. even more. And then right after that, we get uh, the guy in the tux when he has the... the Crack in his head or the, whatever. Yeah. Great party, isn't it? Yep. And then she gets down to the lobby, and it is completely transformed skeletons dust it's as if the hotel had been sitting there untouched for a hundred years with all the bodies still left where they were exactly so uh after jack freezes to death uh we cut back to the inside of the ballroom or inside of the hotel and we get this picture and jack nicholson's character is in the front of the picture and it says july 4th 1921 now there are uh, a bunch of different theories to this um, but as you watched it, I don't give a fuck what the internet says. I don't care what Kubrick says. When you watched it, what was your interpretation? I thought that the, that the hotel had consumed his soul and now he is forever a part of its shine. I really did not know. And I know that's kind of a cop out, but I, I, it never made sense to me. I, I've heard the theories and I could never reconcile anything with it. It just confused the hell out of me. So to this day, you still kind of, you're like, okay, well, this is good then. This is good. My original thought was along the lines of the same as professor, which is the hotel had absorbed him and made him a part of the hotel. But then when I started thinking about it, uh, Grady and a couple of other instances have kind of hinted at he had always been there. He had always been a part of it. Uh, And that's where Kubrick's response really jumped to my mind. But I want to hear what you had to say. Uh, I think uh, I took it as the hotel absorbed him. Uh, The hotel won. You know, that's that's why he is in the photo. And that date is just an arbitrary date. Um, I've heard the that he was reincarnated and he had always been there. And didn't Kubrick say he wanted it up for interpretation? Well, he said that he was hoping the audience would take it as the reincarnation theory and that maybe Jack's ancestor or somehow was the original caretaker. And that's why Grady referred to him as you are the caretaker. Kubrick said that? Kubrick said that in an interview that he believed it was reincarnation. Oh, well, there you go. All right. So, you know, that is The Shining and... That was quite the journey. Did somebody say journey? And now it's time for John's... 
moment. This is the point in the podcast where I take whatever movie we were reviewing and compare it to the greatest movie series ever made, Lord of the Rings. I will start off by saying this was probably one of the most difficult comparisons I've done as of yet. Uh, Comparing The Shining to Lord of the Rings and finding the right character comparisons. So I'm going to start with Danny Torrance. I chose for him Frodo. Danny unwittingly is the key to saving himself and his mother from this corruption. Although he doesn't destroy it in the movie, he is on a journey to better understand his own abilities and what's going on around him. In the end, his actions are what saves himself and his mother. This would make Danny's mother, Wendy Torrance, Sam. Her actions are directly and specifically at protecting Danny, much like Sam protected Frodo. And much like Sam and Frodo, Danny goes on a long journey all around that hotel, so there is a lot of that in this movie. For Dick Halloran, I felt he was kind of a Gandalf character. He's wise. He advises Danny similarly to how Gandalf would speak to Bilbo and Frodo. And like Gandalf, he does get offed. Jack Torrance, I had to think about him a little bit, but really when it comes down to it, he's Gollum. Just like Gollum, he talks to the precious. He hears voices of the precious. He takes orders from the precious, and he will kill to appease the precious. Charles Grady. I was trying to think about him, whether or not I would assign him a role or not, and I did feel like he was kind of the voice of the hotel. He spoke you know, on behalf of the, fo- of the hotel to Jack Torrance to kind of advise him and kind of give him his marching orders. So in a way, I felt like he was Saruman the White. The orcs, they were all obviously the evil spirits of the hotel. When it comes down to what the precious is, what's the one ring? What is that corruption that's affecting them all? Really, that's the Overlook Hotel. It's the evil that saturates the hotel. Much like the ring's effect on Gollum, Bilbo, and Frodo, the hotel has a corrupting effect on Jack as well as the previous caretakers and residents. So that is my comparison between The Shining and The Lord of the Rings. Bring on the grades. All right, so who wants to go first? Go ahead. Fine. I really think that I am modestly impressed with uh, the Gollum and the, uh, the, the, uh, the, uh, the precious angle. After that, eh, boy, it, it falls off pretty hard after that. But those two, those two work, but just nothing else. So I'm going to give this a C minus. <laughs> uh, Daniel. Well, that was a hell of a lot better than that bullshit you were pulling with Pulp Fiction. So uh, I honestly thought the parallels were pretty good. The orcs, I I see where you're going there. With I see where you were going there. I don't know if you needed to mention the orcs. Do the orcs have to be mentioned every time? Are they yeah. an important? I get bonus points for the more characters I assign. Oh, okay. Is that true? Are we, are we giving him extra credit for the orcs? Him. It works for me. That's okay. just just for him. But. There's, it's a double-edged sword because mm. if it is not a strong reference, somebody else really lays they in hard. Some points. I'm going to give you a B. That was that was pretty good. Nice, uh, nice and job. I would love to see Gandalf the Black. Less is more. I, I, I've always said that. Uh, the Gollum, agreed. Uh, the Precious, yeah, 
agreed. Um, you didn't have a Sam or a Frodo in this at all. I think at that comparison, with, along with uh, Grady, uh, are the three strongest. And for that, in my book, had you had just gone with all of that, just those three and made that tight and solid, uh, probably a good B+. Plus. Uh, but because you decided to go on and try to get bonus points from this fuckface, uh, I'm going to give you a solid B-. minus. Holy so. shit. I don't think you've ever given him a B. Oh, I give him Ds all the time. Oh, you said oh, B. Oh, you gave oh, him a D. Oh, my bad, my bad. <laughs> no, B minus, B minus. And that was John's. Moment. All right, so what do you guys think? You guys are ready to rate this bitch? I'm ready to rate this bitch. John, are you ready to rate this bitch? I guess so. Hey, Professor, how do we do our ratings? We do our ratings on a scale of one to five fucks. Five fucks is a movie that is cinematic gold. You're ready to watch it anytime somebody says, do you want to watch it? A one fuck movie is a movie that you've seen and you have no desire to see it again. For whatever reason you were drawn in to watch it, there's just nothing that... It, no, I don't need to see that ever again. And what's a zero? A zero is an elevator full of blood come gushing at you. Fuck you for making me watch that. Or in other words, we just don't give a fuck. Uh, all right, I'll go first. Thanks for asking. Thanks. You go first. There you go. Uh, the Shining. From its epic opening to its kind of morbid ending, I think that Stanley Kubrick did a good job of taking the bare bones of what Stephen King came up with and cinematically gave us something that was frightening creepy and entertaining and at the time you know a lot of those things that we saw we hadn't seen before the use of the one shot or the mise-en-scene as it's called uh kubrick was masterful at it and uh, i love the way he moved the camera throughout the film i love the way he composed his shots i thought the cast was uh, fucking excellent. Uh, I had, I did say that Shelley Duvall's character did get a tad bit annoying at times. And I stand by that. I also did say that this movie's probably, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes too long. And I still stand by that. However, that being said, uh, after watching it for this podcast, I now have a greater appreciation for the shining. Had you asked me yesterday what my score would have been i probably would have said uh 3.5 fucks right but after watching it today and just noticing the things i did and doing the little research and and learning about the book and what he changed versus what kings wanted to do and the fact that there's a, a miniseries from 97 that gets to tell king's side of it um i still think that the shining works as a standalone and it is a piece of film history and it gets taught in colleges it um it, obviously it, it uh, people have hundreds of discussions about it and there's so many different things that you can come up with it and you keep going through it um i think that this is probably one of the best adaptations as i said earlier and you know stanley kubrick changed what he did from the book because he wanted it to be more cinematic you know, uh, the book ends in fire. The movie ends in ice. Kubrick went a different direction from the get-go because he thought it would be more cinematic. And I'd have to say he's probably right. So for that reason, I am going to give 
The Shining, 4.25 fucks. Okay. That was extremely well said. Would you like me to go next? Yeah. Do you want to go next, buddy? I think I I don't give a fuck what you want. Okay, bud, go ahead. Just kidding. Again, I'm going to restate that I'm just, I I think it's that I'm just not a Kubrick fan. And I got to agree with you, Don. There are some parts that felt really long to me. And even if I didn't know anything about the book, the casting I had some issues with. The Shining is a movie that focuses on stunning visuals combined with shocking music. Kubrick, for all of his obsessiveness to detail and getting the right shot, definitely grabs your attention and makes it hard to look away at times. But he also created a movie that is long, with long, drawn-out scenes that I personally felt dragged a lot. I understand that in most cases, this is building up tension. But I did find at times that I was more interested in my phone screen than watching what was on the TV screen. I have to agree with Stephen King when it comes to the casting of Jack Nicholson. While he's an amazing actor, when he's playing a Jack Nicholson-type character, I felt that he just wasn't right for the role. And again, going into this, watching it, I really didn't know much about the book, but I really wanted to see more of a descent into madness and not just a guy who already seemed crazy from the start. And when it comes to Shelley Duvall, I found her more annoying than a great actress. And I know she's done a lot of great roles and she's got a lot of history, but in this movie, her hysterics just drove me crazy. Her nature, her dialogue, especially her screams, almost made me root for her husband at times. King meant for Wendy to be a stronger character, and that's what I would have liked to see. But Duvall played it completely opposite, and I'm sure that's what Kubrick wanted. Danny... While I thought he did a great job, especially doing the tent, you know, the Tony voices and, you know, writing around things and giving the facial expressions, I felt a lot of his delivery was a little too dry for me for a kid that age. The one character that I think I really enjoyed in this movie was Scatman Carruthers. I thought it was nice to finally see him disembark the love boat and give an actual acting performance. So for all of those reasons, I'm giving The Shining 2.5 fucks. All right, well, there you have it. Opinions are like assholes. Who wants to go next? I want to go next. Okay, buddy. So, talking about The Shining, I have to say that it's been a while since I've seen the movie, and this recent viewing that I had of it, it did not disappoint. It is a good movie. It is so effective with its tension and horror and I think that this is an iconic horror movie. There are so many camera shots in here that are just so masterful and wonderful moments that are given from all of these characters, you know, in particular moments during the movie. I love Jack Nicholson in this role. He is played so fantastically. It is amazing that you have his role. We, we get to watch somebody, you know, have this slow and steady descent into madness through his sleep deprivation uh, his his work is a pressure cooker to him and his alcoholism and his guilt that eventually just wears him out and he reaches the breaking point to where he finally succumbs to those inner demons inside of himself and he doesn't have the strength to pull himself out and down he falls into the rabbit hole. I thought that it was a masterfully shot movie by Stanley Kubrick. I am not necessarily a big Stanley Kubrick 
person per se. And I think part of it is because he didn't do very many movies and there's not a lot that I could, that I can draw upon to say, well, what about this or what about that? And because of that, I only have just a few examples as I spoke of earlier, when I, I think of him, I thought that Shelley Duvall's character was nicely played in how frail and and trapped she was in this lodge where she has no choice but to try to bear it out. And Danny, his character, is so haunting. I thought that he was done to perfection. I loved the imagery that we get with the twin girls. This is an excellent horror movie. It's long. And because it's long, it, it's, it's kind of a tougher watch. The other issue that I have with the movie is that our character, um, played by Jack Nicholson, is not somebody that you're ever able to get behind. And because I can't get behind him, I, I find not necessarily any redeeming qualities about him that makes me want to uh, root or hope for him because he doesn't offer anything that I should feel encouraged about. The music and the uh, heartbeat sounds that are throughout the movie, it is incredible having that music just be this undercurrent that just helps convey, you know, the tone and the mood of our characters and the isolation that we feel being in this big, huge building that I think would creep people out in general in the first place when you're in a big huge place and you know there's nobody around and you happen to hear or see something what was that that freaks you out that plays to people's basic fears in the first place loved watching the trike shots so so fun watching him cruise around and the attention to detail of his of the tracking shots as well this movie isn't going to be something that i'm always going to want to watch because it is a somber watch and having that somber watch without much relief is tough i'm giving this movie a solid four fucks all right four fucks from the professor okay danny I have watched this movie so many times over the course of my life. Uh, when I was first introduced to it by my parents, I was told it was a psychological horror movie. So I never really paid as much attention to the supernatural things going on as much as I did to the psychology of the characters on screen and, and the descent into madness. Um, I'm particularly sensitive to that type of horror. I don't know what it is about the sense of losing your mind that terrifies me so much, but it does. That's, that's a, the thing that makes this a scary movie for me. I find it immersive. Uh, sometimes I have trouble getting into the mindset of watching a scary movie. If I'm not into it, if something in the acting, something on screen takes me out of it, or, or maybe I have to convince myself that this isn't scary. But in, in this instance, I sink into it very easily. Uh, the movie does well of keeping the audience tense and on edge. It maintains an unsettling atmosphere throughout. It's disorienting and confusing at times. It makes you question what is real, and it preys on the viewer's sense of themselves. It terrorizes your mind. The movie did well with the things that make it scary. The setting alone, the isolation associated with being up in the mountains with nobody able to get in or out. The psychological aspects mixed with the spiritual and paranormal entities. The social aspects between the characters adds additional layers of anxiousness, whether that's between a husband and a wife, a son and a father. 
the trippy synth music is really the current that keeps the movie moving down this dark current. The horror tropes are present and done masterfully. Uh, the creepy little kid uh, or a cute kid doing creepy things uh, in this instance, I think is on par with Haley Joe Osmond in The Sixth Sense. Uh, Shelley Duvall anchors us to this horror that's happening around her as she helplessly watches her husband and son deteriorate. The sweet and loving mother is punished. Wendy is the solid foundation of their family, even though they're shown to us in a more traditional American male-female role where the husband is essentially in charge. And that's where I kind of push back on that idea that Shelley Duvall is helpless. I think that is mostly the case throughout the film but that moment in the Colorado room where her boys are falling apart in front of her she really steps up and tries to do what's right even though she's meek and backs down from Jack and says oh I need to go back and think about things she knows what she needs to do I think she's just strategizing a way to make it happen we do see flashes of compassion from Jack but after discussing this with you guys I feel like that idea has kind of been wiped from my mind and and the flashes of Jack that we do see are, are just corrupted by the hotel. I love this movie. I I would watch it just about any time it's on. Uh, I would say that I agree that it is a bit laborious in length and a uh, bit of a terror on my mind. So uh, I'm going to give this 4.8 fucks. 4.8 fucks? Am I allowed to do that? No, you can do whatever you want. I'm just making sure I heard you correctly. 4.8 fucks. You Four, heard me correctly. I'm starting to think he has a hearing issue. He's old. Well, thanks, guys. Uh, fuck you. Fuck you. You're cool. And fuck both of you. Okay? All right. So with 4.25 fucks from myself, 4 fucks from the professor, 2.5 fucks from the comic book guy, that brings The Shining in at 3.6 fucks which makes it slightly better than Big Trouble in Little China, Heat, Peanut Butter Falcon, and slightly worse than Dogma, Halloween, and The Batman. All right, if you want to find out which movie we are going to be reviewing next, be sure to check out our website and or social media areas. Uh, speaking of which, John, where can they find us? Well, as always, they can find us at our website, threeguysinaflick.com, where we go ahead and post our podcasts, movie trivia, and our show notes after every show. You can also find us on any of the social media or anywhere that hosts podcasts. All right. I just want to say thanks to Zach, Ronnie, and Jill for listening. Keep on listening. Thanks, Zach. Thanks, Ronnie. Thanks, Jill. And I also want to congratulate Zach. He just recently got engaged. So um, congratulations on wanting to get murdered. I mean, married. Congratulations. Congratulations. And I also want to give a big, big shout out and thank you to little Danny here for coming on and talking about one of his favorite movies. It's always enjoyable to have someone who loves a movie so much and who just wants to talk about it. Definitely fits in here at the table with uh, the three guys. So I am a fan of yours as well. You can say that. Oh, no, no. I, I don't want to presume anything, sir. He fucking loves us. <laughs> All right. So for three guys in a flick, I'm Don. I'm John. And I'm Ken. And I'm Danny. Thanks for listening. I know he's on his phone, and that's fucking fine. 99% of the time, he's not paying attention. But that's not the point. The point is, <laughs> raises his hand. He's not even supposed to be here today. We'll get to that point that I think is the true.
turning point. And and it very well could be, you know, uh, that's just where I saw it, and that's what I felt. And since I'm never wrong, you can go fuck yourself. Did you have something to say? Uh, like there's a second half to that saying uh, that all play and no work makes Jack a mere toy. Does it ever tell us that? It does not. So how did you know that? He just made it up. I did some research. It goes back to an Irish poet. Uh, they added the additional part. Was it in the movie? No. Then I don't fucking care. Okay, how about that? Was he not a mere toy of the hotel? Oh, yeah. Welcome to my world. All right, fuck off. Good night.